0: am I with CBUS Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the worksite and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. CBUS. For all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit CBUSSuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS.
1: I had to go about it, write out.
0: This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with me, Adam Collins, and the bloke down the other end of the Zoom screen, his name's Jeff Lemon. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the end of the COVID test matches. The six test matches in seven weeks, they finished up today at Southampton. The denouement brought James Anderson's 600th test wicket, which we're going to go long on because we've both enjoyed the work of Jimmy over many years. So expect a little bit of that. We've got some good news when it comes to women's cricket, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. The Australians are in the country as well. They're being stationed in Derbyshire after getting a flight there during the week. It looks like Afghanistan are coming for the Australian summer. So lots of positive stuff to talk about today as I welcome Jeff Lemon. Hello.
1: Good morning. Um, Yeah, we we had We had cricket last night And now it's it's early in the morning where I am And in the evening where you are In another backwards time warp (laughs) Weird final word And it was, well yesterday in the UK A year since Ben Stokes did his thing at Headingley as well, so so the feed was all. It was, there were a lot of happy English people on the internet yesterday. It was all Stokes on the one hand and Jimmy on the other.
0: I, I kind of interpreted it as though Australian fans, for the most part, and Richard Hines captured this actually in his response to me. Were happy to not necessarily celebrate what Stokes did last year, but they're at peace with it because they know what happens the week after at Manchester. If not, the, <laughs> it, which is it different, does help. yeah, which is different to 1981, where the Botham intervention at Leeds is followed by two two more match winning performances and so I guess every time Botham's opened his mouth For the next 40 years It's made it worse and worse and worse again Whereas with Stokes It's sort of a an extraordinary event Obviously from a you know an ashes memory And, and one that we're all going to remember And the coverage of it was incredible Even like the commentary that I, I don't know if I mentioned this a couple of months ago But during lockdown I think I mentioned it on Calling the Shots actually But um, during lockdown Mark Nicholas's commentary from Channel 5 Which no one had really heard before Because we're obviously we're familiar with Nasser Hussain And Ricky Ponci Calling that final stanza. And we know the TMS call as well, which is pretty amazing, with Jonathan Agnew there with uh, Alistair Cook and Glenn McGrath about to punch on in in the commentary box. But the hidden commentary, if you like, is uh, from Channel 5, who were doing the highlights then. And Mark Nicholas's call is unbelievable it's Nico at his absolute best and I tweeted that out today but yeah it was kind of no one had heard it until it really went on YouTube in April this year so it was a nice little nugget there to, to pop up on social media today but yes one year on I, I remember Jeff you and I having a number of arguments about it the night before as to whether England could pull it off at the time I think I was saying well look Joe Root will be the man Joe Root can you know steer England home from here whatever he was 70 or, or so not out overnight he'll be there at you know, on 160 and they'll, they'll pull off a remarkable win. We never really thought about Stokes, given he was two or three not out overnight, and you were adamant that it couldn't be done, and and then it was, and and then I guess the the chaos that ensued for both of us over the next couple of days, fielding interview requests around the world, it was pretty full on, but amazing as well.
1: Well, my position was that it was impossible, and I stand by that position. It is impossible, and that's why it's interesting. That's why people are still (laughs) talking about it, because it was impossible, and yet... (laughs) they did it anyway yeah two two from 50 balls as we'd remember from one of our nerd pledge segments a few weeks ago uh, if if not from the year before and and i'd like to make a special mention as well of one of the tms producers tim peach whose wedding anniversary is on that day and who, who made the point that he was far less likely to ever forget it again having <laughs> once once ben stokes did what ben stokes did so that the 25th of august Front of mind for a whole lot of reasons. Um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed recording the Daily Show that night, and just, which was you know probably only half an hour after uh, after the end of play on that fourth day, and and just buzzing with the exhilaration of of what we'd watched, and and a lot of um, otherwise jaded colleagues have said the same about that being the best thing that they've seen in in far longer covering the game than we have.
0: I remember where we recorded it, actually. We were sitting in the beating sun, which doesn't tend to work for you because of your skin complexion, and we were... Right on the cusp of getting very badly burnt when we decided to pull the pin, but it was the it's the most listened to episode of the final word ever, unsurprisingly. Uh, so, hmm. if you haven't listened back to it, they're still on the feed, obviously. If you scroll through, and you'll be able to hear Jeff and my take about yeah, no more than twenty minutes or half an hour after it was all over. I mentioned TMS a moment ago, and I mentioned calling the shots. Actually, I should welcome any new listeners to the final word today who may have arrived here via calling the shots and TMS, because very kindly, an extract or an, uh, an edited extract from a couple of episodes of Calling the Shots that related to the BBC and TMS's history were run during a test match at, at the lunch interval on Sunday and Monday, which was pretty cool for Norky and myself to have that project that we worked so hard on during lockdown, get a run to, a, I guess, a different kind of audience. So if you've in turn gone back to listen to uh, Calling the Shots and found it on the final word feed and you're listening today, well, welcome to you. I hope you enjoy your stay as part of our final word flock.
1: And I'd like to reassure anybody who's just joined us that we don't start the show talking about our dreams. Um, it's probably one of the most boring things that can happen <laughs> in existence is somebody telling you about their dreams because you're like, this has no relevance to me. I could not possibly care less. And so we don't do that. And I never remember my dreams anyway. And, and then so I don't relay them on the show. And there the are very few that I do remember. They're never about sport, but but, but I had, there was a, There was a a moment, a dream moment that I've got to pass on to you, Adam, because I I haven't mentioned this to you as yet. I I had a dream about cricket, which never happens. So you dream about cricket all the time. I I do. I don't don't know why. It just never comes into my my dream space. I remember nothing about it, nothing when I woke up, except for one thing. There was a one-day international and Glenn Maxwell was playing and he took eight for 37. And what really stayed with me was that, I remembered the figures. That, that tells me more than anything, we've been doing way too much like stats analysis and, <laughs> and nerd pledge and all the rest of it because I remembered nothing at all except the specific scorecard figures. So I was like, eight for 37? Wow, blow me down. That's a fair performance. And that's what lodged in my brain. So hopefully, you know, that's predictive and I look forward to the eight for 37 sometime in the next few weeks.
0: The last time we talked about dreams and the final word, I reckon, was about a year ago. It was about another off spinner. And did we both have a dream about Greg Matthews? Or something like that, or did I?
1: No, only you. Don't try uh, to drag <laughs> me into this. You, you had, you, you had a um, uh, an intimate dream about Craig Matthews. Yeah,
0: I think. that sounds about right. The, um, the, yeah, well, yeah. It, sometimes it is hard to get away from the game. So I was calling the Bob Willis Trophy fixture between Middlesex and Sussex during the week, which was a really exciting finish. And Middlesex won after being 90 runs behind on the first innings, and they won inside three days before the rain. It was really. Excellent cricket, but on the second afternoon, Izzy, who was calling it with me, we found a cricket ball. And what did we do at the lunch break? You know, after watching all these hours, hour after hour after hour, we just bowled at each other for half an hour in the middle on another pitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh God!
1: Just uh, imagine being a cricketer and looking out and seeing that when your game's finished, you'd be like, oh losers.
0: What is wrong with these guys? What is wrong with these guys? I'll tell you, someone who loves bowling though, Jeff, and uh, and, and today uh, was able to uh, celebrate that amazing 17-year international journey that he's been on is one J.M. Anderson. In the end, the test match at Southampton to finish the summer, I mean, it was completely hijacked by Anderson's 600th wicket because we lost so much time, especially yesterday due to inclement weather, but other parts during the, the test match as well, but what a relief that he got there because imagine if he finished up on 599. I I was speculating yesterday that, look, it's not entirely outside the realms of possibility that he won't play a test match again because, you know, old guys get injured sometimes and it means they aren't able to play again. I know Anderson's super fit, but let's say he goes to Sri Lanka or the UAE and doesn't he, which happens, and then he wouldn't be able to necessarily play next summer and then he might have been stuck on 5.99, but at least that definitely won't happen now and he's over that hurdle and another chance to celebrate one of the great modern careers, indeed one of the great careers in the history of the game.
1: I would take issue with your saying that he enjoys bowling, because he never looks like he enjoys bowling. I think Jimmy Anderson approaches bowling in the way that we approach writing, which is he enjoys having <laughs> bowled.
0: Having bowled. Uh, <laughs> he, he,
1: he enjoys having had the success once it's been had, but he doesn't enjoy it much when he's doing it, and that's backed up even more so when his fielders are dropping catch after catch after catch after catch. Like My God, he's trying to go from 598 to 600, and they drop four catches en route. <laughs> and you're just thinking like what? It, he's the grumpiest man and in cricket anyway, um, just facially expression-wise on the field. But, like, how many trials and tribulations did he have to go through? And then maybe, maybe it was all worthwhile because the 600th was a beauty. You know, the, the 600th yes. was as you would want it to be. It was the best player on the opposition team probably i suppose, I suppose babar azam has taken that from azar ali now but but certainly the the best player in the match for pakistan azar ali who made a, a really good fighting 100 in the first innings it was not a, a, a Sort of brutalizes delivery. It was a shortish ball, but not a bouncer. But it was a, a surprise ball, just on that off stump line, making him play at it when it was a bit, a bit shorter than he expected. And then it was a, a great catch by his captain behind the wicket. So it's it's the way you'd want it to be. If it's not off stump cartwheeling, that's probably a more James Anderson style dismissal than the nailing the stumps because that's not really what he does it's in the channel it's moving away a bit it's taking an edge and it's going to the cordon
0: yeah that mirrors a conversation I was having with Vish earlier today when he was preparing to write about this and Vish is from our school as well hates writing loves when he's finished writing and he was asking me about sort of memories of Anderson Bowling sort of worldly deliveries and my take was that it's less about with him the incredible deliveries and more about like that those subtleties and that delivery to pick up wicket 600 is exactly that hitting the seam catching the outside edge bringing a player forward who probably should have been playing back and shouldering arms and the way he was able to i guess mesmerize Azar Ali who'd been batting for well by that stage he came in i think on evening 1 so he'd been in the middle at some stage or another for the he'd been over in or not out overnight since Friday, and that feels like a long time ago. But Anderson was able to sort of finally get his wicket with that subtlety today. So I think that's spot on. I thought a lot today when reading actually Greg James's tribute to Anderson uh, on the BBC website. So the co-host on Tailenders podcast, and Greg, of course, is a host of the, the breakfast radio show on, on Radio One here. So he doesn't write about cricket that often, although he of course is involved via the podcast. But he was talking about Jimmy being shy and how that kind of runs into the idea we have of him as being this grumpy alpha male sort of I suppose but listening back to the interview we did a couple of weeks ago with Barney Douglas and Felix White the other co-host of Tailenders, it reminded me that Jimmy in the Edge documentary reflects on how he got bullied when he was a kid and I think that gets lost a bit with Anderson it's that he appears like he can be the bully sometimes uh, and perhaps that's more uh, how he was, was earlier in his career but deep down that that's really not his personality, which I think is an interesting discussion around what you need to do to perform at that top level, the way you need to get your mind into a place that it might not naturally go. So that was um, one of many excellent pieces of writing this afternoon. I read Vicious as well um, as he sent it off, and, and they this, a good nugget in that was that they did a great montage when Stuart Broad reached 500 test wickets with his dad and other friends and family members and his girlfriend and and so on, reflecting on wicket 500, but Jimmy's dad refused to participate in the package for 600 because they were putting it together a few weeks ago. He's like, I'm not going to tempt fate. I'm not going to get on there and talk about (laughs) him taking... Uh, Wick at 600 in in case it doesn't happen for whatever reason. So, I mean, there'll be some fabulous tributes in the papers tomorrow as well, I suppose. But I guess the good thing for those of us that love Jimmy is that it's not sort of the um, obituary of his career, I suppose. It's a, a career that, according to the man himself, will now, or well, he hopes at least, will, will kick on until the 21, 22 Ashes, which feels like a really long time ago, away in, in some respects. But really, it'll start in 15 months from now. So I see no reason why he he can't work towards that, even if you, even though he'll be close to forty at that stage.
1: Given the way that he's looked over the last couple of weeks, you, I tend to agree. The, the the age thing that they talk about it it doesn't necessarily apply to someone who's managed to be a fast bowler for over one hundred and fifty Test matches. You mm. know that's it's it's a ridiculous achievement when you. When you look at, you know, the way that Anderson's always been spoken about, particularly in Australia, there's there's often been that sort of bitter edge to, oh, well, he's not that good, you know, takes all his wickets at home, blah, blah, blah. I would hope that more people can come around to the kind of position like Australian parochialists would see headingly a year ago, which is that you have to admit how extraordinary it is even if you didn't like it <laughs> you know if, even if you if you would rather it hadn't happened even if you you know rather that James Anderson hadn't been there for 17 years at some point you can't deny something of a particular magnitude a particular enormity for a fast bowler to take 600 wickets for anyone to take 600 wickets you know everybody talks about how Fred Truman went on and on about taking 300 and how nobody would ever do it again. You've had three spinners who've gone past 600. That's it. They're the only ones who are able to, you know, have that chance given that they can be a bit more durable with their bowling actions over their career. To be the first seam bowler, you know, to run in off a longer run-up, hit the pitch harder, bowl those lengthy spells have all of those tours on unresponsive pitches in in Asia and uh, particularly in the UAE where he learned to, to bowl really effectively over time to get brutalized around Australia on a, a well several tours you know aside from that the one really successful one that he had in 2010 11 and still want to keep going and then the fact that over the the past half dozen years he's been able to get better and better statistically you know take more wickets more often concede fewer runs sort of year on year. There comes a point where you can't detract from that anymore. It doesn't matter how parochial you want to be. Mm. You you can't undermine 600 wickets by saying, oh, well, the average... 35 overseas or whatever it might be. Like, it doesn't matter. 600 wickets is 600 wickets.
0: Yeah, and a couple of things to add to that. One, that number's come down over time. Two, uh, in seventeen eighteen in Australia, he showed that he had become a more versatile bowler. Uh, Mark Ramprakash was talking about that on TMS today, that um, the, I guess, Anderson version one, who was... Out and out quick Morphed into Anderson version 2 So you know Well documented That he remodelled His action Had the stress fractures In his back Remember he was The 12th man In the 2005 Ashes series I mean he was The next man in To that remarkable Bowling attack Who toppled Australia But That comes before the the problems with his back, then comes back and appreciates that it's not about raw pace, it's about swing. And then I guess version three is when he realised that it was about cutters and variety and how low his bowling average is, for example, in the UAE speaks to that. So the fact that England were trounced in Australia the last two times they visited, it it doesn't Sort of take Anderson out of the uh, out of the equation as far as criticism was concerned for those defeats, but um, on unresponsive tracks for the most part. And really, uh, if you go back to thirteen, fourteen, a long, long time ago now, but England had Australia five for not many in the first innings of each of those five wins it was that Brad Haddon and the lower order and invariably someone like Smith or Warner or Clark who rode shotgun uh, with Haddon or should I say Haddon who rode shotgun with them managed to do enough for Australia and then Mitchell Johnson was doing the rest so it wasn't really about Jimmy it was about the shortcomings of, of the batting for the most part so yeah I think you're right it's hard to dispute this uh, I think it, obviously parochialism with Australia and England comes into it undoubtedly I I, I appreciate that's as part of the the back and forth but I like the idea of him coming back to Australia one last time, if it's possible. Look, doing it at age 40 or near enough to age 40 would be truly something. But these bowlers are fitter than ever for a reason. It's because they continue to have their uh, fitness levels monitored so closely. Actually, you'll like this, Jeff. He, he went within six deliveries today of being the quickest bowler to 600 test wickets. So Morelli got there one over before Anderson did. Oh. Uh, so <laughs> so I, thought, I thought about you immediately. When that stat flashed up on Scott, I thought immediately of you uh, earlier today. But I don't think it's outside the realms of possibility that he'll be in the squad and they'll say, well, look, you'll be, you know, I think Vish described it as like a mentor. He might come to Australia as like an assistant coach slash mentor who would play perhaps under lights in Adelaide Mm. in conditions which should suit, might play if the pitch looks ripe, but you wouldn't subject him to playing, for example, in what the, the surface they rolled out in Melbourne uh, three years ago. That would be a waste of time and a waste of resources. On, on a surface like that, you'd go elsewhere. But that's, I think, where we're up to with Anderson. The fact that they're playing India at home next year, a country he's had a lot of success against in England, and the fact that it'll be the start of a new World Test Championship cycle, I think that'll be irresistible. I'd be surprised if he pulled the pin before then, put it that way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, as he's said plenty of times, he'll, he'll keep going as long as he can. It's really only a matter of if if something physically gives way in a way that he can't recover from in you know, a reasonable enough time frame. Can you explain something to me about the end of that test match, which although I had to get up at seven to record this podcast, I <laughs> stayed up and watched anyway. What doing one ball into the last hour that England shake hands on it, they've got Pakistan four down. Pakistan don't have a tail that can bat. England have a new ball. They have Broad and Anderson to operate with it. And they think, oh, I don't think we can get, say, two more wickets you know, in the next few overs with the new ball to get into the tail and possibly run through them. Why the hell would you give away a chance at a win? Like, Surely you're still a chance at that point.
0: To be honest with you, I, I wasn't thinking along those lines at the time, but I think maybe Bad Light might have been the main driver behind that. By that, I mean they wouldn't have had the chance to have bowl many overs anyway, or they'd been given the nod from the umpires that time is running out. The fact that Tom Sibley got a trundle before the end. Sort of sums it up, really, didn't it? That it was going in in one direction after Anderson. But I thought that was that just wicket. to get them to
1: the new ball. No, no, it like, was. You know, it was part timers on to get to eighty overs. But sure, then they gave up just after.
0: No, no, yeah, you're right. Of course, but I just mean more that like it had that sort of last day of school mm. vibes to it. Yeah. Uh, um, and Sibley's over. Sibley has opened the bowling quite a bit, by the way, in, in T20 cricket back when he played for Surrey, which made his over all the more amusing. Really, sort of a couple of half trackers, a couple of no balls. It was all pretty. Scrappy, a couple of full tosses. Um, he really did choke when given his opportunity to bowl uh, in junk time there towards the end. But I think the, the most frustrating part of today, though, was that Barbara's arm looked a million bucks. And as he did uh, in the first Test match before getting out to Anderson, uh, I think it was on the second morning in the first over he made it to sixty nine, um, looking tremendous. But I, I think when we think about this series, you know, in a year or two from now, if, 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 we, if we were to think about it again, we'll, we'll say, well, look. It's unfortunate that Barbarazam didn't have the kind of tour that we hoped that he might and that the Pakistani fast bowlers, especially the two youngsters, are like this far away from being able to really win a series on their own. They showed glimpses of it at different times, um, but they're not quite there yet or perhaps they're not quite there, uh, you know, as a grouping yet. But. The next time they come to England, whenever it is, they are going to be much better for this experience, even though the last two tests have been sort of fairly limp affairs as far as bad light and, and rain and, and so on. And, and the fact that this time around they came up against the bloke in Zach Crawley, who we haven't mentioned yet, who went on to make 267. And to be honest with you, I think he threw away not only a triple tonne, but potentially a, you know, well, not the probably not Hutton's record, but he, he could have knocked off Gooch's three three three. There was more than enough time. When he got out, they made another... I think they added another 100 runs after he got out before they declared. Mm. So if he were to make, you know, 60 of those, say, and you think that's about right given the strike rate he was going at, that takes him into the sort of 320s just about. So I was a bit frustrated on that basis. But no, it was a kind of an amazing uh, way for him to reinforce that he shouldn't be left out of the side ever again, or for a long time anyway. <laughs>
1: Um, now that was that was the one bit of the test that I, I didn't watch a huge amount of was the Crawley innings. What doing with that? Uh, that's my my second my second what doing question is <laughs> now how did that happen? You know how did a guy who was recently averaging twenty something in first class cricket come in and and make a score like that against? And it, it's one of those things with that Pakistan attack where a week earlier they looked a million dollars mm, uh, mm. the way that they were moving the ball around in those conditions uh, suddenly they're being picked off for a double ton and, and then you realize well this is pretty much the same attack that uh, gave David Warner a, a triple hundred in Adelaide but those were you know couldn't have been more different conditions wise so uh, what what went on in Southampton? Was it just that the, was it that the pitch died completely? What did Crawley do? Did he go into a phone booth? Did he take his glasses off? What went on?
0: I don't think really any of those things, to be honest with you. Like, well, first of all, when he walked in, he added. 45 from his first 45 balls, and he wound it right back. The thing about Crawley's innings, which was most impressive, was the way he was able to modulate it. He, he, he went up and down. He had periods where he scored in a runner ball and periods where he scored. I think he occupied the crease for 40 consecutive dots in the 170, something like that. Uh, so, th- And that was that was the best bit, I reckon, is that he didn't get carried away, but at the same time he was batting at a strike rate across the innings of, I think, of 68 or something like that, and Butler's strike rate was 48. We haven't mentioned Josh yet, Made 152, the great man. He was the player of the series uh, for England and I think Ali was for Pakistan. But the way that the butler was comprehensively outscored by the youngster. And the point I was making the other night when I was asked about it doing another, uh, another interview was that this kind of reinforces a point we've made on the final word quite a few times, that teams aren't just picked on spreadsheets. If you just went through and picked the top six players based on average and ruled the line after mm. that and pop them in the team, well, that, look, that's one way of doing it. But having a cricket IQ, if you like, having a sense of the game is important too. And in the case of Butler and Crawley, perhaps both of them would be on the other side of the of the cut if you were just picking it on averages and raw data alone, or data is probably the wrong word to use there, but just that that pure runs divided by wickets metric, but... With Crawley, they've seen a guy who has a, a straightforward technique, stands nice and tall in the crease, straightforward, and they've they've said, Well, we think that can succeed at test level. He's only 22, not a particularly big sample size at first-class level. We're not going to invest too deeply in that. We've seen what he can do at underage level. We've watched him plenty uh, coming through the system. And by the way, the fact that he's been like living next door to the county ground at Canterbury for years and Rob Key's been you know in there in the nets with him, mentoring him since he was 14, I think so goes the story, it can't hurt that he's had that kind of intimate one-to-one coaching. So he's been on the radar for a long time. You go back and look at tweets from when he debuted in first-class level, Again, Vish was one of those people who sort of called it early because the name Zach Crawley was doing the rounds even when he was a, a mid-teenager. So I think, you know, credit to Ed Smith and to James Taylor for sort of almost disregarding the first-class numbers when it comes to a player like Crawley and to an extent Butler as well, who seldom plays red ball cricket when he's not playing for England and kind of realising that there's there's more than one way of putting together a Test 11. It wouldn't work if you picked 11 Guys like that. But I think there's Mm. space in a team to go, well, look, he's the one for the future and he's the... Uh, you know the, the generational freak in Butler, and they kind of complement that with other players who do bang the doors down when when playing county championship cricket, and you kind of get a nice blend together. And that feels to me as though what they're doing at the moment with this top six, and yeah, for Crawley's part, he, he leaves this knowing that he can do it. And there were there were hints, wasn't weren't there? I mean, there were there were hints in South Africa, and there was that seventy odd he made against the Windies. Then he was left out when they were trying to play a different configuration. He came back because Stokes went given a second opportunity. He made a half century in junk time last week And I guess had that confidence against a, a pretty strong Pakistan attack And, uh, and then took the, took the chance big time in the final Test match here So I, I think that that's a, a really important stepping stone Another thing that gets talked about with Crawley all the time Is that he comes to Australia in the winter to harden himself up So that he can play fast bowling He's been playing grade cricket for exactly the reason That he wants to play in the Ashes in Australia and he's been, I think he went to India for similar reasons to get better against playing spin. Now, it probably doesn't hurt the fact that he's from a wealthy family, but if you put that to one side, that he has that kind of kind of economic flexibility, if you like, or financial flexibility, um, he, you know, uh, not <laughs> that everyone- That's
1: a very nice euphemism. Well, it's, it's true, isn't it?
0: If you've got that sort of flexibility financially, like to have a flat next to the ground at the county you live in and, and other, you are going to be systematically- at an advantage but it doesn't make you a good batsman Uh, you know you can be given all the advantages in the world there's those great stories of Kerry Packer having James Packer in his home nets getting pelted with 90 mile an hour bowling machine jobbies uh, when he was sort of a teenager and he never kicked on but Crawley has the game to kick on and I think that this is proof positive that we're going to see him for a long time (laughs) A,
1: a, a, a passionate prospectus on the uh, the life to come of Zach Crawley from Adam Cullens, a, a notable thing in the last couple of tests for Pakistan. Favad Alam coming back, uh, debuted eleven years ago, didn't <laughs> basically wasn't picked for the best part of a decade, uh, and then got. <laughs> you know, got a couple of innings. I'd, I'd, I've rarely been so nervous for a player as I was watching him in that second dig. He finished naught, not out, but all I could think was, you know, if he if he gets out as this meanders to a draw and, and he gets out for one or something and, and gets punted and never comes back, I mean, maybe the naught, not out won't help him either. They'll say, well, he still didn't make any runs. But, you know, he, he got back into that team and then, I've really felt so nervous as watching him take guard a meter outside leg stump <laughs> to Stuart Broad coming around the wicket to a left hander with the new ball and then and then Favad alam has this. Method where he steps into line just as the the bowl is about to release, as you might have seen you know Craig Mcmillan do for New Zealand some years ago um, it, it's not the it 's not the George Bailey backward stance, but it 's a the reverse. It's a quite bizarre yeah well, so he, he sort of faces upside on yeah. but outside leg and then steps into line and, and plays the ball and I was thinking trying to do all of that as a left hander while broad angles the ball in and seams it away or decks it back in off the seam to your stumps it 's not a recipe for lasting a long time but in the end, uh, he didn't have to because they they called it off. But it was it was wonderful to see him get his chance. But I I just wondered if they, if whoever's had it in for him in the Pakistan selectorial um, setup was was just hoping that he'd fail quickly so they could pack him off again.
0: I, I hope he gets another opportunity, but I also hope that not play too many more Test matches without Shadow Khan playing. Like that to me felt mm. like a pretty big misstep, given he. Did as much as he could in the first Test match, runs and wickets. From limited opportunities with the ball, I should add, given Yassir was really given plenty of chances uh, there at Manchester. And Fawad Alam, of course, comes in for Shadab Khan. But you know who's going to end up on the on the scrap heap here, Jeff, uh, and probably didn't help himself today getting out to Joe Root, uh, Asad Shafiq. I mean, he waved his bat at the wide mm-hmm. one from Anderson a couple of days ago and out to a part-timer today. Hasn't had a good series. I mean, I know we've both loved his career, especially his statistical breakdown at number six, you've got that saved away in a spreadsheet somewhere. But I feel like if they're going to keep forward alarm and give him an extended opportunity, and Christ, his first-class numbers would, would almost insist on that now that he's there in the 11, um, that it might be Assad Shafiq who makes way when they go to Zimbabwe.
1: Yeah, um, it, it's it's looking more and more that way. Um, Osman Samiuddin wrote about the two of them in in contrast on Crick Info And the way that Assad Shafiq has, has had the opposite sort of run You know just, just a rails run A lot of the time mm. Despite You know Often Well Rarely delivering f- Fully as he, as he should have You know he, he can He can deliver So beautifully When he does But yeah I'd, I'd, I'd love him to get A few more knocks At number six Just to go past Steve Waugh As the The highest run score From number six In test cricket Do it for the stats But it was Sometimes frustrating Wasn't it, it well, the well they didn't let yeah. him Bat
0: at number six I mean In the first yeah. I guess in the In the second And third Test matches, the way they rejigged it, it meant that, was it Farwood Alarm then? uh, Was it Mohamed Rizwa might have batted there in the first test match? And in any case, he didn't bat six at all. It was others doing that job, which frustrated me knowing. No, he, he hasn't done it for it. a
1: while. Asad Shafiq has wanted to bat five. He's wanted to bat higher up. So he, he hasn't batted at six full time for a few years, but he, he was just so prolific there for the, the, the earlier years of his career. And uh, I just want to see him nudged back down there to, to finish off the set as a, as a completionist. Completist. What do they call it? I don't
0: know. Yeah, I think completionist talk. Yeah, one or the other. I think they both work. Before we move off Pakistan, uh, Muhammad Rizwan, I know we talked about him a couple of weekends ago about his wicket keeping, but geez, feisty, isn't he? He's such a beautiful keeper. That... That catch off fruit on morning one, moving to his left off Nasim Shah was a was a ripper, and he made it look straightforward. And how well he is up to the stumps, and how nicely he batted in that big partnership of 139, I think it was, with Azhar Ali when they were kind of stuffed, and it, he was the one that sort of showed that determination. He hit a six to bring up his half century as well. I just. Feel as though it was the perfect timing uh, moving uh, Safraz on. I know Safraz is here for the T20s, but you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think they've really nailed that transition. We saw Rizwan, of course, play in Australia last year and, and looked apart in Brisbane. But yeah, I think they've, they've really found something there.
1: Rizwan, Kenobi. Yeah, he's, he's got the goods. He, he and Shadab both have that. Um, there's a really enthusiasm that comes through both of them, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it, it comes off them. You can see it. You can see it on the ground. You can see it through the screen. They're, they're smiling. They're into it. They're glad to be out there. Um, and, uh, you know, just that energy on the field can make a big difference to, to players around you, I think. And and when you ally that with the, the quality of play, the sort of cleanness with which Rizwan one attacks the ball and and the way that he's he's always positive in what he's trying to do out there. I, I think that makes a huge difference.
0: And, and I think that the Rizwan example, I wrote about this before, the test match for the Independent actually, it might just help remind people that a specialist keeper... Uh, it, look, I don't want to overplay this because it'll sound like I'm talking down Joss and I'm not because he kept so well, notwithstanding the, the drop catch-off Anderson. That take off Broad was worldly down the leg side and, and it, perhaps even better than that, although it wasn't remarked upon quite as much. His catch-off, Don Bess, was an absolute ripper as well. A very difficult take. But the fact that they're going to Sri Lanka next and probably playing in the UAE against India, Ben Folk's made a century and a half century after being released from the bubble this week, so he really did take advantage of his opportunity, his first opportunity to play proper cricket all summer, really. Whether they take Folk's and just let Joss bat, that might be tempting. I know that's what they were doing up until... I suppose the South Africa series when they had Bairstow in the team and that might be tempting again to use Folks in Sri Lanka where he was player of the series last time given that Folks is you know objectively um, the the more uh, adept Gloveman out of the two of them.
1: Yeah look it's possible and there's there's a huge, huge amount of Ben Folks love us. there often is for someone who's not playing. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to get them in there, whatever method it takes. But it does make some sense, particularly, you know, given how taxing it can be, keeping in those conditions where you're up to the stumps more, keeping Mm. against spin more, and and that's where, you know, there might be those one or two opportunities, the tougher ones, the the tricky stumping that kicks up and, you know, hits one keeper in the shoulder but the other one gets it in the gloves. Mm. that, That can make all the difference in a match like that. And I'd say especially... If you are playing in the UAE, where wickets are really hard to come by, you know every every possible opportunity for one has to be taken. If you are going to bowl a team out on on some of those tracks, but yeah, that's that's what's facing them next. It's the it's the end of that bio-bubble sequence for England at home for now, I guess, although I suppose we don't know, you know, how, how much longer sport will need to be played in these sort of conditions and who knows what will be happening in a year's time when England's back or, or, you know, in Australia for that matter.
0: Yeah, I think this is an interesting place to leave the conversation, really. It's that we've had six biosecure test matches and I think, Jeff, maybe we thought they would be six and that would be it because when you go back to the start of this series or the start of the West Indies series, perhaps, and uh, in Australia at least, really COVID was behind us. Well, certainly felt that way. COVID was something that had happened since this series has been played. Uh, COVID is something that's very much happening again. You know, the schedule's out the window, which we'll come to in a tick. And, you know, the idea that behind closed doors cricket might need to be something we get used to for an, in the medium term. It's just a reminder, I suppose, of the massive sacrifices made by the players and the officials and the staff and Everyone involved in it. I mean, think about how long some of these players and officials—I should add—I don't want to just make it about the players—have been away from young families. I mean, I don't want to do the whole like as a father. But I mean, if you had to drag me away from, if you had to me away from Winnie for as long as say uh, some of these players have been away from their young children. Take Joe Root for example, who missed the first test of the summer. I'd be beside myself with. I mean, I don't want to say you, you'd be you, there'd be a lot of anguish around that and a lot of these players have had circumstances like that so and not to mention the tourists i mean This isn't just a normal run-of-the-mill tour. They've they've had nowhere to go. Uh, They've been uh, stuck in hotels, which must be so emotionally taxing. So the fact is, yes, we know we can do it, uh, but also uh, I suppose it's it's the right time to, again, uh, recall and remember and reflect on all the sacrifices that have been made by a lot of people to put on a show for uh, us who enjoy the sport and want to see it return to normal as soon as possible.
1: The Australians, uh, the next one's into that. They've arrived in England for their their white ball tour. Um, Aaron Finch was talking about that last week, saying they've got the team psychologist travelling with them in that bubble, which isn't always the case, to make sure that they've got that mental health support if they need it. It, it does make you wonder you know, how sustainable it is. Like, touring was hard already yeah. for professional players, but... Does that mean that you have to tour less? You know, if the tour is as exacting as it is, if it means so many weeks in complete isolation, does that mean that players will have less ability to withstand it than than they would on those trips where they can get family with them or where they can, you know, at least get out and about in between matches and, and do things to have some semblance of a life?
0: Well, yeah, and I think the expectation is that. They are going to try and squeeze as many of these World Test Championship series in as they can between now and when the final is scheduled to be at Lord's next June. Uh, look, that's going to that's going to require a lot of cricketers spending a lot of time away from everything other than their teammates. So yeah, Finch Finch's comments were interesting that. They've observed the West Indies and Pakistan experience and they they know how difficult it might be, even in a tour where they're playing six limited overs games starting on, I think it's the 4th of September, but the fact that they've got to go and spend two weeks in quarantine, I quite liked um, to to, um, lighten the tone a little bit here. I quite liked that photo that Adam Zampa took of them all jumping on their chartered flight from Australia to Derbyshire. I put on Twitter, it must be the, the first flight ever that's gone directly from Australia to Derby, stopping... No stations straight to the east <laughs> midlands and uh, and Derby cops are uh, a whack, and I think Jeff, you share my view about Derby that it's a lot nicer than people say about it, but um there's a lot more going yeah I, I really like Derby, but still it was a I guess a point of parody a little bit that they're going all the way around the world to basically shack up in a travel lodge next to the Derby County cricket ground Or whatever it is So <laughs> But they're here now And they'll play their intra club Or whatever they call it Warm up games And prepare for them the, the the internationals They have the week after next Having quarantined And gone through The normal process Then they go to the Aegeus Bowl They're home away from home they, they like it down there In Hampshire So And they're not going To the same circumstances That the West Indies And Pakistan have been Over the last couple of months. But yes, it's the first time, Jeff, we're going to see the Australian team play since this all blew up, which is kind of weird in a way. I I've, I know we've talked about them a lot. And I know there probably have been times in our lifetime where the Australian men haven't played for six months, but not for like a really long time.
1: Yeah, there have been occasions. There, there have been, you know, winters where there, there wasn't much on. There have been occasions where there was very little cricket for six months, but, you know, probably not none at all. And mm. so it's it feels it feels nice in a way i feel kind of relieved that i'll be able to <laughs> switch on the internet television and see some familiar names go round even though nothing about it is normal it'll be be calming in a sort of way and it'll be interesting to see where they're at too you know they've played very little 50 over cricket since the World Cup last year and that was very much an Australian team sort of putting itself together on the run so it'll be interesting to see what they are now with you know, quite a few, a few changes but also some consolidated
0: parts And we'll talk a lot more about that next week on the weekly edition of The Final Word. Uh, just one more point of discussion before we break and cool our jets for a bit Interesting story overnight that Afghanistan looked like they are coming uh, so, Nagraj, Quick uh, Info, who's an excellent news hound there, has it as them playing a test match in Perth between the 7th and the 11th of December. It's unclear, according to the report, whether it will be a red ball test match or a pink ball test match, but the frame of the story is, is that they will use that Afghanistan test to to ready themselves for the India test matches that will follow. Presumably, that means the reports we saw in the City Morning Herald last week about the Indian white ball stuff, so three T20s, maybe four one-day internationals, in November followed by the Afghanistan test match followed then by uh, the Indian test which might start according to that I mean if they play a test between 7 and 11 uh, December in Perth I see no reason why they couldn't get the first Indian one potentially even in before Christmas then Boxing Day New Year and and the one after that whenever they elect and wherever they elect to play it but I guess the the good news there Jeff is that we I guess assumed that Afghanistan would be collateral damage out of all of this, but this report has it otherwise.
1: I suppose there is the incentive for, for CA that it's credible preparation, you know, against a number of spinners and, and all the rest of it. But there are so many questions about how it could take place. You know, whether they can even get into Western Australia, what the what the quarantine uh, requirements would be for getting Afghanistan in, and then for getting the Australian players in, for that matter, because WA hasn't been very cooperative with sporting bodies thus far um certainly not to the extent that some of the other states have been and and then that the the knock-on from that is you know we've had so many different configurations and uh, there's a schedule that already exists which will probably be thrown out but in favor of what we've got no idea and you know it's interesting that channel seven massively cracked the shits the last couple of days um james warbird and very publicly getting into cricket Australia for that saying that basically saying that the footy codes that you know, AFL and NRL had done the work to provide surety to their broadcast partners and cricket can't do that and the flip side of that is that CA have done that where they can with the domestic stuff but when they're dealing with another international board that's something that a domestic football code doesn't have to do you know the, the AFL can make its decisions and it has to get clubs to go with it but Basically, it's, it's got the, the driving hand in those discussions, whereas Cricket Australia have to get the BCCI to agree to the tour um, on terms that suit both parties. So it's not as easy for, for cricket to line up that international summer.
0: And CA also did try and provide certainty when I mentioned before kind of that weird time when COVID felt like it was in the rear vision mirror and they did release their entire summer schedule. I think it was perhaps the... The first week of June, which again, I mean, a lot has changed, but it did happen. Uh, and yes, obviously the world's changed quite a bit again since, but it does sequence okay, you know, sort of looking at it before we went on air. The IPL, which will finish on the 10th of November, which then leads towards a, a period of quarantine back in Australia, followed by... You know, six white ball games, maybe seven white ball games in quick succession. Say they played them every other day in a couple of cities, presumably behind closed doors or maybe limited fans, whatever it is. And then they get into the Red Bull stuff via Afghanistan, followed by the Indian test matches. Like That actually would work without having to marginalise the IPL deals of their major stars, who I'm sure will want to stay in the UAE until the very end of that tournament. I don't think it would be sort of something the player, any of the players, and of course the Indian players won't be able to do it either, so it's a moot point, but it does work a little bit better than at one stage when the Afghanistan test looks like it might run directly into the IPL and there was going to be that inevitable scenario where CA would call the players back and they'd crack the chits, or they'd be mm-hmm. allowing some players maybe to stay in the UAE and miss a test match which would create a whole different conversation which we haven't really experienced yet in Australian cricket. I know that in English cricket it happened a little bit about 10 years ago or so whether missing um, you know your home summer which we don't obviously have to because the IPL doesn't clash with the home summer but they seem to avoid that under this sketched plan that we're seeing little bits of drips and jabs from. So I'm sure we'll know more by the time we record next week, Jeff, because talking to our our mates in the press pack, it feels like CA are looking at announcing something next week. So fingers crossed on that. All right, Jeff, after dealing with all those relatively weighty topics, I think we should change it up a bit. We should shift gears like Zach Crawley and move seamlessly towards a little bit of... Nerd Pledge.
1: Uh, that's the the, uh, the Russian monks version. Um, yes, Nerd Pledge. It is, it is a game. It's a fun game. It's a game that we play. We play the game with people. Those people are, are people who are on our patron page, and what they do is they send us a number of dollars and cents that equates a cricketing number and then we have to deduce the significance of that number and we will do so expeditiously as this is the early in the week show later in the week on the weekends we do the deeper uh, peruse into the numbers but today we'll just have a squeeze at a couple a couple of that have passed on through. Uh, Jesse G is first off the rank. Jesse G is so keen on Nerd Pledge that Jesse G has changed his number half a dozen times already despite his first number not having come up yet. Um, he's in the list a, a number of times. But here is number one off the rank for Jesse G. And it's a cryptic clue to begin with. The number is $1.24, so one twenty-four. The, the cryptic clue from Jesse is that the last number... In the pledge has its own importance to the overall number, but separately. So I take that to mean that the number four has a relevance to one twenty-four, rather than four having a relevance to one twenty. But I could be mathematically confused there. So I think it's four relates to one twenty-four in some way, but what way could it be? And we've been doing sort of vibey fingers over the the internet trying to work this out for a while before we recorded. Adam, there are there are sort of vague possibilities, but we're we're circling the truth rather than you know nailing it as a bullseye.
0: Yeah, I think that that's right. We've been kind of circling it without quite getting there. I mean, I, I was sort of thinking like the fourth time someone made one twenty four, or the fourth instance of one twenty four being made in a test match. But that doesn't really tally, nor does it feel like it's maybe the four drop catches in an innings of one two four. These are options, but they don't quite feel as though they ticked the box that uh, Jesse has set for us?
1: Yeah, I, I was I was looking at, you know, could someone have made a score of 124 on four different occasions, but that's never happened. So the other sort of hint that came through from correspondence with Jesse was that it's not likely to have a huge amount to do with uh, Australia or England in that it, it wasn't the most obvious options. So that did lead me to the 124th test match came during the test tri series in 1912 between South Africa England and Australia so and that was a, a test that South Africa played in but then I, I couldn't find anything in that test match that necessarily related so that, that was one possibility there's nothing there's nothing to do with bowling so there's no there are f- uh, figures of 4 for 124 that have been taken but none of them relate to to anything else in a way that that, that jumps out at me so I think what we might do is set this as an audience challenge as well we'll look at it more before the weekend but if you're listening and you want to try to crack a nerd pledge yourself you want to feel the sweet thrill of victory when you track down someone's number and we've we've had a few stubborn ones that I've finally cracked for this weekend as well that have been on the waiting list if you want to work this out so it's 124 or it's it's 1.24 so it could be could be could be a 12 and a 4. Anyway, the numbers are 1, 2 and 4 in sequence and the 4 has something to do with the 124 separately mm. and it probably doesn't have much to do with Ashes Contests or their participants. So, think about it and if you want to get in touch with us uh, on the, the patron DMs or the internet, whichever method you choose, you can do so before the weekend.
0: Yes, that's a good idea. We've, we've thrown a couple out uh, on Storytime recently and we've received some fantastic responses. So if you haven't been listening to Storytime or maybe this might entice you over to our weekend edition of the show. Thank you. Jesse, we'll be talking about you again on the weekend. $2.57 or 2 Five That's a double up, Jeff. That's Adam Hewitt and Julian Campbell. So that's where two of our patrons have issued the same number. And I kind of understand why. Where did you go to when you saw 257?
1: 257. 257 is an innings that I watched and you watched... I assume live many years ago, <laughs> given that it was at the MCG and given that it was 2003 um, peak Adam Collins at the MCG years. Mm. Ricky Ponting 257. When he went back to back, he made a he made the double in Adelaide, which was 242, I think, mm-hmm. or two, two, yeah, yep, was around there anyway, wasn't right. it? Two four two. Dravid and Ponting made doubles in the same game. Ponting went on and made a double in Melbourne as well, which was the, the match that Australia won there. Was that the was that when Brad Williams was bowling for Australia at the MCG? Yeah, yeah. Brad Williams, Nathan Bracken. That's and, right. Um <laughs> it it wasn't the most it, I the, think this is it the it wasn't the front line bowling attack. Stuart McGill would yep. have been the spinner.
0: Yeah, I think this is that this was a series where they rotated through, where Jason Gillespie played one, but not the other, and I think there might have been Andy Bickle involved as well.
1: No, Brett Lee played that game. Oh, Brett, Brett Lee, played, Lee. That, Brett game, Lee played I'm sure. that game, right?
0: Yeah, you are right about Brad Williams though. Four wickets in the second innings, but didn't keep his spot and got dropped Sydney, I reckon. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, then they played. That was, of course, the Steve Waugh farewell tour. That was his penultimate. Test match, of course, the series where India retained uh, the Border Gavaska Trophy on Australian soil, of course, having won it in 2001. I did watch it, you're right, and that was peak Adam Collins time. That was the, the summer between my first and second year of university. So that must have been the year where I went to, I think I went to something like 40 days of cricket at the MCG that year or something crazy. <laughs> um, when you combine all of the first class days and the tour game that year and the... Various Mercantile Mutual Cup fixtures and so on, and of course, every day of the test match. But what I, why I remember that particular readings was that that was the last year. I think, pretty sure, uh, where I could sit in what was then my favourite spot of the MCG, which were the brown seats in the Olympic stand, or brownish, might have even been black seats, actually, come to think of it. But in any case, the seats that were as far behind the bowler's arm as you could get in the public reserve in the Olympic stand, which would be where I would sit for Sheffield Shield Games as well. But uh, I wrote about the guys that follow the Victorian team around week in, week out, and still do watching all the Sheffield Shield Games. Well, back then, their little pocket of the ground was in the Olympic stand. top deck uh, all the way around in those yeah I think it was brown seats and I sat there with them for the duration of that ponting uh, double hundred so uh, I remember it fondly and that is one of uh, the two two five sevens in Test cricket. Um, let's give uh, Adam Hewitt to to Ricky Ponting, or Ricky Ponting to Adam Hewitt. More to the point,
1: they give them to each other, to one give another. Them to each they, other. Can, they can merge. W- would I be right in saying that's Ponting's highest score?
0: Yes, you would be right in saying that. Yes. So he made those two Thank double you. hundreds. In fact, I think the first of those double hundreds he he, he racked up. I think he was 200 not out at the close at Adelaide. That game was in sort of fast forward. To think that he made a double hundred on day one and Australia lost that test, kind of crazy. Anyway, thanks to Agurka. The second 257, Julian Campbell, I'm going to give that to you. Was he Macram, Unbeaten 257. Oh, yes. The bombastic innings in, in 1996 in Pakistan, in, you know, I think it was in Punjab province, uh, where. I didn't perhaps quite appreciate at the time what a remarkable hand this was. So Zimbabwe make 375 in the first innings and they have Pakistan 6 for 183 in reply. Like they're not far away from... Well, they're not going to follow on, obviously. They've passed that hurdle. But, you know, having a very healthy, potentially three-figure first innings lead... In the end, Pakistan go on to make 553. So they've moved from 183 to 553 with their final four wickets because Wasim Makram came out and bludgeoned 12 sixes, which is the most in the history of Test cricket. But I think... Perhaps what's more impressive is the fact that everyone thinks about the the six hitting record. He faced three hundred and sixty three balls and batted for four hundred and ninety minutes. This was a proper innings. Yeah, he was hitting the occasional big one. Don't get me wrong, but um, you know this was this was a, a serious innings as well. It wasn't sort of a a chance in his hand for a day and everything going right. He batted for a long time, so he set pakistan up beautifully there i had a quick look jeff at the scorecard of that match and when matthew hayden made 380 and there's only one player to have been involved in both zimbabwe and 11s and that was craig wishart who thankfully for his sake was a batsman and never had to bowl to um, was him or to (laughs) matthew hayden and of course it's still the, the highest innings for a pakistan captain and it is still the highest score made in test cricket at number eight so pakistan's Wazzy McGram, the great Waz. 257 not out in 1996. That's all yours, Julian Campbell.
1: I can't see a lot of number eights um, having the chops to go past that anytime soon mm. either. I reckon that, that record's safe for, for a very long <laughs> time. But imagine how deflated you are if you're, you're Zimbabwe. You've got them six for 180. You're like, all right, <laughs> you know, knock off the tail, we'll be 150 in front and might be a chance to win a test match. No, sorry, we're going to take that one away from you. So that's 257. And the last of our new numbers today from Rohit Ramesh, thank you for joining the fun. $4 a 69. What might 469 suggest to you, Adam?
0: It's not a great number as far as if you go through the the history of Test Cricket and the times that 469 has been made. None are kind of remarkable. There's a Bradman 100 in there from Sydney in 1931 against South Africa. Yassir Shah took 4 for 69 against as, England. As in
1: as is in that he, in a, a total of four sixty
0: nine? Yeah, yeah. So Bravo made one twelve. He wasn't the top scorer. I mean, I, I doubt it's that. but yeah. It's worth noting. I mean, I doubt it's Jeff Miller's cap number. Um, I doubt it's the fact that Yassir took four for sixty nine, albeit at the end of that great Test match in twenty sixteen at Lords. I mean, mm. Nathan Lyon's taken four for sixty nine on on three occasions, which I thought was kind of quirky and kind of interesting. But
1: do, do you know why that is, though? It's it's just it's so that he can point to the scorecard and then just phrase it as a question. Are you
0: up (laughs) for Maybe that's why Rohit uh, Ramesh has sent that to us. For that reason, probably not. But yeah,
1: that, that, it's it's not. You are, we're up, we're up, Rohit, we're up. <laughs> I'm up early, he's up late, <laughs> <laughs> round the clock.
0: Oh, Jeff. Uh, well, uh, what I yeah, because you know how sometimes we get a number that's in the four hundreds and it's like remarkable, but like there are a number of hmm. in, we have to talk about it for quarter of an hour because they've been like. Six incredible test innings that have landed on whatever the number is, but this isn't one of those. So that makes me think that there's probably something more to this with uh, Rohit Ramesh's number. So I'm going to send him a DM and i'm going to encourage him to give us a clue and we will return to that as well i i think on on the weekend show
1: the only the thing that's speaking to me with 469 is that uh, i know that you like uh, symmetry you know you you like when something doesn't happen very often and then it happens in a shorter space of time mm. uh, so 469s there aren't that many you know, team totals in the history of test cricket but india made 469 back to back in terms of it happening in cricket at all, as in they made 469 in 2001 against England, and then they made four, the next 469 was them in 2008 against Australia. But both of those scores happened at Mahali. So, out of all the grounds in all the world where cricket was played in that time, 469 happened by the same team at the same place, seven years apart. And I, I quite like that little link. So, I don't know if. If anything in either of those tests speaks to Rohit Ramesh as what the 469 should be, but that's that's where my, my waters are divining. They're leaning that way. They're dragging me towards Mahali, the gang of four at Mahali, the, the, the famous <laughs> ground that will live in Australian hearts forever.
0: Uh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you Rohit and Adam and Julian and Jesse. As you mentioned off the top of the segment, Jeff, uh, we love uh, our engagement. Uh, on Patreon with the DMs www.patron.com forward slash the final word if you want to pop in a nerd pledge we're really enjoying story time uh, each weekend it's a lot of work to pull it together but it's totally worth it because it's so much fun Uh, and it's been uh, I I guess a legacy item of what we were doing uh, in the first lockdown Uh, we're doing it again in the second hopefully uh, you're enjoying it as much as we are uh, in pulling it together and we'll be back for more of that on the weekend and indeed we'll be back with more final word after just a quick break Hi, I'm Natalie Jimonis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins.
1: We are approaching the start of a new month, and you might have noticed there are 12 of them in, in a year, and you might have noticed that things that time themselves by months uh, do so 12 times a year, and, and often they do so at the start of the month so that you know that the thing that's related to the month is going to be related to that month. And a thing that's related to a month is Wisden Cricket Monthly. It's a magazine that comes out once a month, and it does so towards the start of the month, sometimes even confusingly at the end of the previous month, but it's still the magazine for the next month. Don't get confused that the September issue might have come out at the end of August. It is definitely the September issue, not the August issue, because you can read it for all of September until the October issue comes out in September. You with me?
0: That used to freak me out when I was a kid growing up, uh, buying Inside Edge magazine, which was, I suppose, uh, the only cricket mag we had to get in Australia until I realised you could buy magazines from overseas and subscribe accordingly but i think wow it's the you know it's the it's the september edition of the magazine and it's only about august the 14th well as it happens wisdom cricket monthly don't quite do that but given that we're entering september in a few days from now this is the time that on the shelves you can buy yourself already a copy of wisdom cricket monthly for september in august how about that And it's another time travel. It's another bumper edition of the magazine, as they always are. It's the best cricket mag in the world. They've made 35 of them now. There was a a precursor that that lived before it, there was another magazine. And and, and since it's been Wisdom Cricket Monthly, 35 editions later. And I like the fact that we're going full circle uh, with the cover story this time. The cover story of edition one was Joe Root with Lawrence Booth. The cover story of edition 35 is also. Lawrence Booth, the editor of Wisden's almanac, annual almanac, which comes out once a year, being an annual, as opposed to the magazine, which comes out 12 times, being a monthly. He's talking to Joe Root and others about him as to whether he can go on to become one of England's greatest or whether um, he's just a, you know, a, a very good player. And I think that's a, a worthwhile discussion at this part of Root's career. Maybe we're at the midway part, so it feels like it's the right time to ask those sort of questions. And who better to ask them than Lawrence Booth?
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about Giuseppe Root recently about whether whether he's still in the Fab Four or whether it's a you know a differently alliterative good three uh, or whether <laughs> somebody else gets into the four you know does 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 Barbara Azam get up in there in to, to to keep it as an FF who knows um, but. You know, we, we have our opinions on that, but that's basically what Lawrence Booth is investigating. John Stern has looked at the, the Pakistan pace factory, which is something I've always been interested in, is how the hell do Pakistan continue to produce fast bowlers at, at such a prodigious rate and um, and be quite wasteful of some of them, it must be said, or mm. some of them are wasteful of themselves as well. Um, Phil Walker is going back to the series of 1992. It's, it's been interesting to see all the retired players being all pals and all smiles on the commentary and so on when 1992 was so fraught when Wazim Akram and Waqar Yunus was smashing through England and all of the off-field brawling ended up in the high court with a defamation case uh, so it's it's a long t- seems
0: a long time since that but Phil Walker's looking back at that series. We're Got Vitality Blast Action coming. Uh, So there's a big preview of all 18 counties there. Taha Hashim, who's one of the great young cricket writers in there at the um, Wisdom Cricket Monthly Factory, he's written the next chapter of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly diversity piece. So each month they're they're adding to this in order to try and develop the conversation around cricket's diversity problem. Uh, He's looking at um, Yorkshire especially. James Wallace, who... And again, another very good young writer at the magazine. He's talking about... much-maligned role of the Stonewaller. A good time to be looking at that, given that Dom Sibley at the moment is dividing opinions. Uh, There's lots of interviews in there, as always. Uh, Phil's talked to Isha Guha, Mike Brearley, uh, Brian Henderson. I had a fantastic chat with uh, Brian, um, who's the boss of Sky Cricket, about how the whole Black Lives Matter set-piece event, I suppose you would call it, on the first day of the series happened. I mean, I kind of thought... This, you know, it couldn't have been coincidental. It must have taken a lot of planning. And he went into a lot of detail with me about that behind the scenes. And that was really interesting. I think you'll enjoy that. And then, Jeff. then there's the columnists. Andrew Miller, Elizabeth Ammon, Zaffer Ansari. They're always in the magazine. They're always there once a month. Twelve columns they will file per year on the basis that it is indeed Wisden Cricket Monthly. (laughs)
1: And if they file 13, one of those won't be printed. And if they file 11, it won't be enough. They must file 12. And if they file 12, they've done their job. Uh, and, And if you subscribe, you can get those 12 issues and you can get them very, very... Cheaply, You can get them at a, an outrageous discount. It's about 10 quid for for half of the year for, for six issues of this magazine. So that is a thing that you can get only through The Final Word. You can only get that through the magic code, which we put in our show notes. So if you go to the the bit where there's text about the show, there will be a link there which has a lot of letters and numbers in it. And if you click that, it will take you to a secret door. The bookshelf will spin around and you will find yourself with a discounted uh, subscription to WCM. We recommend it. Do it now and you will not have to do it on any of the subsequent months when an issue is released until your subscription (laughs) runs out because that's how it works. I'm Daniel Norcross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon
0: it's the final word I'm Adam Collins he's Jeff Lemon. let's race through a little bit of lightning round we haven't done this for a while Jeff the lightning round but how we like to do it sometimes in the second half of the show is we will have a range of issues we used to call it pot puree but we, we will try and race through as quickly as we can whilst giving you as much information as we can let's start it with a favourite topic of yours and mine man Ricky Ponting doesn't like it too much he's looking after the Delhi daredevils in the IPL uh, Ravi Chandler Ashwin is now playing for the Delhi Daredevils. He, of course, um, is a big fan of, of running at the non-striker when they take the piss. And it looks like those two men are going to butt heads based on the comments from Ponting on the Great Cricketer podcast last week. Ashwin responded by saying that he thought that that will mean that the, the two of them will need to have a conversation when they're in Dubai. It's going to be interesting to watch.
1: <laughs> well, two, two things about this, uh, about, about this approach from Ricky Ponting. One is that anything that he's said on the Great Cricketer podcast should probably be taken as you know at least, at least partially humorous. Yes, you know, sure. I, I know that Ricky's a he's a fairly serious character most of the time, but um, it, I, it, it was probably asked fairly uh, tongue in cheek and may have been answered the same way. But the other is, don't try to stop Ravi Ashwin being Ravi Ashwin. He does what he does and he is what he is because that's who he is and that's what he does. Uh, those things are completely redundant statements but they're the kind of statements that people like they they sound sure there's surety in there ravi ashman runs out the non-striker because the non-striker shouldn't be out of the ground it's pretty simple why would you as a as someone running a franchise come in and say i'd like you to not get wickets in a way that you could get wickets i'd like <laughs> you to play outside the laws of the game indeed yeah yeah, I'd like you to be lenient on the opposition. <laughs> now, all of this stuff that I've heard about Ricky Ponding, all those years ago, Oh, Ricky Ponding, they'll say, What a hard bastard. Anytime you get some compilation video on, on cricket.com.au or whatever it is about, you know, interviewing past players with, with some moody dark background and oh, what are your recollections of Ricky Ponding? Oh, what a hard bastard. I never gave them an inch the opposition. Right. Well guess what? He is giving them an inch. <laughs> He's happy to give them an inch. He's happy to give them, inch. <laughs> to give them six inches. It's they want to wander out of their ground that's fine so any team if 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 Ravi Ashwin doesn't win this debate uh, and 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 if if the edict goes out that we will not run out the non-striker when they're out of their ground every team batting against them every non-striker should be six meters down the pitch just be like Well, just take the piss completely all right we'll I'll start here how do you like that I'll, I'll skip through for a single it means I have to run 12 yards suck it you know that's what should be happening
0: and I hereby reissue our, our invitation to Ravi Chandu Ashman. We want to see you on the final word with us. We did correspond with him on Twitter a couple of weeks ago about this very topic. We can't be far away from nailing him down to doing an interview with us. And when we do, it'll be a lot of fun. Jeff, some fantastic news today. England's women will be hosting international cricket this year. The West Indies, what an amazing cricket board they are to the WICB. Their men have only been home for a couple of weeks and... Just last week, South Africa's women pulled out, as we talked about on last week's show, uh, of coming to England because of COVID restrictions and travel restrictions and so on. But into the breach, the West Indies women are coming out for five T20s between the 21st and the 30th of September. They're all going to be played at Derbyshire. One of those will be on BBC TV, which is pretty cool. A couple of men's T20s are also going to be on BBC TV, I should add. And it's, well, look... um, in a, in a summer of uh, dreadful news for women's cricket, really, across the board around the world, this is something to hold on to and uh, to the credit of the ECB who weren't willing to let this go. They could have easily given it up when India pulled out or when South Africa pulled out and they said, no, no, we're going to find a way through. And they have.
1: Never going to give you up, never going to let you down, never going to hire a private jet to fly you into England. That is what the ECB have been able to do. Um, There was a piece that Emma John wrote in The Guardian during the week which was persuasive on this as well that women's cricket hasn't been lost in England like it has been in some other locales quite deliberately, uh, that that they've made the two a priority in making sure they get some of the men's and the women's program on this uh, restricted summer. So... The fact that, yeah, those games will be played in September and there'll be a, a decent chunk of them, a, a five-match series, is is very encouraging.
0: And I think, Jeff, on that basis, we, we should make uh, Claire Connor, who's the boss of women's cricket at the ECB, and her team, collectively, the CBUS Super Performers of the Week. CBUS investments, products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of the building construction industry, including fit-for-purpose insurance. And I see some parallels between that investment in the game that is being made by the ECB (laughs) in a summer where they needed to take out insurance against the global pandemic. CBUSUper.com.au if you want to learn more. Of course, Cbus have been magnificent supporters of the final word over a very long period of time. Of course, past performance is no indicator of future performance necessarily. You can jump on and grab yourself a product disclosure statement from Seabusuper.com.au. Thanks for their help. Uh, Jeff, one other point out of all of this, which I just thought we should quickly touch on, is that after South Africa pulled out of this, it wasn't lost upon many people that they popped a statement out today uh, saying that after their women have a training camp over the next few weeks, that they'll be permitted to fly to the Women's Big Bash League because, as the statement read, if it's an individual contract that they are um, fulfilling, that's fine. They're going to be allowed to do that. It's just that they weren't allowed to fly over collectively to England as a team. It seemed a fraction quirky and inconsistent.
1: Maybe that's a liability thing, that if you're making an individual choice to leave the country to go and do something off your own bat, as it were, as opposed to being requested to collectively by your employer. Um, who knows? Uh, Cricket South Africa is... Um, a bit of a carnival at at the moment or sort of the the the, the dying hours of the carnival when everyone's hammered and vomiting everywhere and <laughs> yeah, all the good stuff is over and you know anyone you wanted to talk to has gone home <laughs> the clowns have got loose and they they they're running around it it's um yeah it's chaos over there at the moment so frankly who knows um the the australians have got a series upcoming against New Zealand as well. So the Australian women and the New Zealand women will be playing the Rose Bowl, not the college ground in the United States of America, but the contest, the one-day international contest between those two countries. And they'll be playing some T20s as well, the, the first cricket in Australia since March. We still don't really know where those games will be. It's all being chopped around a bit. It's all it's all COVID-dependent as, as these things tend to be
0: at the moment. I like the fact that Maitland Brown's getting an opportunity for Australia, a player we follow pretty closely in the Big Bash League over a number of years now. Um, great personality, so I remember speaking to her a couple of times in the early years of the WBBL, and she seems like a lot of fun. So uh, I'm glad she's getting her opportunity after a string of good seasons. And Belinda Vakarewa is back into the squad as well, which is good news. Of course, she was in the World Cup squad uh, all the way back in 2017, changed WBBL clubs along the way. She was a real breakout star all the way back in 2015. But the left arm quick is getting another opportunity in this sort of extended squad. So as is the, I guess, the, what we've been accustomed to in the last couple of months. They don't just name a squad of 13 or 14. I think from here, there's about 20 or so names Listed at the moment, most of the usual suspects. Elise Perry's got an asterisk next to her name. Uh, whether she plays or not will be dictated to by how her shoulder is at the time. Taylor Valamick won't play, though. She's been ruled out of this series, still making her recovery from the injury setback that kept her out of the T20 World Cup back in March.
1: And let us send a few fireworks up into the sky for Lisa Stileka, who's been in the ICC Hall of Fame during the week. No small thing there, Uh, not just for her her long and extensive work as a player, but her work in coaching and player development uh, and then in commentary over a long period of time. She's someone who's given a, a huge amount to the game, she's only forty-one years of age, so she's you know she's done an awful lot in that time. She's got a lot more to give. You'd think over the next you know twenty, thirty years that that she'll be able to contribute. But you know, nearly four thousand runs for Australia and two hundred and twenty-nine wickets across her international career, and then you know what she's done, starting as one of the the pioneering women broadcasters in in the IPL uh, initially, and and expanding her commentary empire around the world.
0: Yeah, there's not much she hasn't achieved, is there? When you go back and look at the fact that she was uh, the Belinda Clark medal winner in 2007, 2008, she was an integral member of four World Cup winning sides in both 20 over cricket and, and 50 over cricket. So, uh, yeah, a, a really fantastic uh, pioneer for women commentators as well, as you mentioned before, what she was able to do, bouncing from grandstand onto the IPL, then, of course, the Channel 7, what she's done over here as well. It's We, we, we spoke to her at length about that on Calling the Shots actually her story and it's a, it's a really good one so I'm thrilled to see she received that recognition alongside Jax Kallis and Zaheer Abbas at that ceremony they had digitally last week it's a shame they weren't all together as they normally would have it but uh, still that recognition was there for the great Lisa Stalaka Jeff that brings us to the end of the lightning round and in turn to the end of the final word for another week I say for another week we'll be back uh, on the weekend uh, for story time we already talked a little bit about that uh, when we went through our patron uh, nerd pledges today but patroncom forward slash the final word if you want to get involved in nerd pledge and you want to enjoy a bit of story time with us on the weekend um as usual thanks to uh, everyone who supports us on there thank you to bad producer productions dc uh, to astrid and to jay and all the team there bad producer productions.com to listen to their arts sports and comedy podcast. To anyone who's reviewed us or rated us on iTunes, that always makes a difference in terms of who gets to listen to the show and where we end up on the charts and all those other things that are good for our, not just our ego but in terms of uh, hopefully expanding uh, the amount of people who can be part of the Final Word crew over the years and, and thank you Jeff for getting up at 7 o'clock in the morning uh, so that we could knock this edition of the show on the head so it'll get out into people's feeds this afternoon. I appreciate that. A great- Right deal.
1: I don't like it. I don't like doing it. Um, it's not natural. It's not normal. It's not, there, there's no upside. Everyone who's like, oh, the morning is such a great time to be up. It is not. There's nobody should be up in the morning. The morning's not for that. Um, but nonetheless, I did it. I did it for you, Adam, and I did it for everybody out there. Um, this, this is the kind of selflessness we need during, during the <laughs> these <laughs> <His> unprecedented times. <laughs> Everybody needs to pull together. Uh, yeah, let's let's get some precedented times. I'd like some precedented times back. Um, Me there too. There was some news during the week that, that, that we might, that Earth might be hit by an asteroid that day before the US election on November 3rd which which may be a blessing in disguise um, <laughs> how that goes so, Which happens just, to be, just, we'll, let's all look forward to that
0: <laughs> which happens to be the day that uh, we're scheduled to fly back to Australia as well as it happens so, uh, well, you you might know, as well
1: be mid-air when it all goes up but you you'll have a good view
0: sounds good to me, well it doesn't really but anyway, thanks for listening uh, to another edition of The Final Word, as I say, we'll be back uh, on the weekend with story time until then, enjoy yourselves stay safe Adam and Jeff Ciao bella saying goodbye I had to go.